welcome to the 2233 Diner. My name is Chris and I will be your server. Let me tell you about today's specials. The soup of the day is chicken foot. For the entree, we have a Syrian stew. For dessert, some fresh coconut, and that will be followed by some very, very strong coffee. I'll be back to take your order in just a sec. Oh, and you're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange and food stories. Do I smell? I probably would smell the fried chicken from the <laughs> across the street. There was a restaurant that was making fried chicken, and I tasted the pizza that we were having at lunch at school every day. This week, don't eat the street vendor's ceviche. Don't let a day go by without some coconut milk. And don't let anyone tell you that the world's best food comes from anywhere but Aleppo. Join us on a journey around the world to tickle your taste buds. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. Exchanges shaped who I am. And when you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yeah. I must say, food. Very strange because I found it difficult to actually find something that looked similar in Ghana, at least, if not the same. From the beginning, I basically did not have anything. I didn't see anything close to what I knew. Hamburger was like a first time for me ever knowing what a hamburger is. Pizza too. Yeah, It might look surprising, but pizza was actually, that was my first time actually knowing what pizza was. The food in Aleppo is spectacular. I'll preface it that it's not by accident. I mean, there's friendly rivalries across many cities in the Middle East about who, what city makes the best food. But, you know, hands down, when, you know, you look at this topic across the board, objectively, I will say that Aleppo is a special place. It is known as sort of like the Paris, culinarily speaking, of the Middle East. And the reason for that is not by accident. Historically, Aleppo was a merchant city. It was uh, located towards the end of the Silk Road, and it had an incredible amount of diversity of people passing through this area. Aleppo has been a central community to Circassians, uh, Armenians, Jews, uh, Christians, Muslims. It had rich cultural, ethnic, and religious diversity that I think contributed to the cuisine it has today. There's this one dish uh, called kibbe safarjaliye. Now, kibbe is the one of the most iconic dishes. It takes on a variety of formats, but the essence is it's very lean meat, usually lamb, mixed with bulgur wheat to make a dough, and then it's stuffed with either more meat or sometimes uh, butter or sometimes shahme, which is lamb fat. But they say 
they have a saying in Arabic, halab, immil kibab wal mahashi, which means Aleppo is the mother of all forms of kibbeh and mahashi, which are stuffed vegetables. And this one particular type of kibbeh is called kibbeh safarjaliye, and it's quince kibbeh. Quince, if you haven't had it before, it's very popular in the Mediterranean region. It's like a cross between an apple and a pear. It's very astringent, very tart, very sour, uh, but when you cook it down, it's sweet and delicious. In fact, in Spain, they make membrillo out of it, which is this uh, quince paste that they serve with manchego cheese. But here in Aleppo, they make a stew out of it, and they fill it with pomegranate molasses and pieces of kibbeh that are stewed in there. And the first time I had this dish, I actually didn't like it. My host mom made it for me, and she's this older woman who uh, can't have a lot of sour notes because she's, you know, her stomach will refuse it. And so I ate it, and I thought it was okay. But her daughter is an expert cook. Her name is Tantrena, and she's still in Aleppo today. She taught me many of the recipes I learned during my research project. She invited me over to her house one day, and I, you know, casually asked her, "Oh, what are you making?" And she said, "Kibbesa farjaliye." And I paused, and I was like, "Oh, I, you know, I didn't say that I didn't like it, but she's like, she sensed it because I was pretty obvious in my reaction." And she's like, "Did you have kibbesa farjaliye at my mom's?" And I was like, "I did," and I thought it was oh, it was good. I said, I, "I sort of it was a white lie." And she's like, "You need to have it at my place." And she really packed in those sour notes, the pomegranate molasses that really helps cut the sweetness of the quince and it was a phenomenal it was like when she, i had it at her house it was one of my favorite dishes i've ever experienced maybe we just have to go back to the pork issue this time it was my friend who had, who invited me for halloween did, most of my friends knew I was Muslim, but like I said, in that that town, if you're not careful, you, I had to basically ask of everything. What I mean, if there's any food, sometimes I had to ask questions because they would see it to be normal. Like they don't they don't really pay attention to this. But I saw it; it was my religion. I didn't have to take pork. So there was this food. I think it was like um, a soup prepared, and they had some meat in it. So um, I actually tasted the food. First, I I I I belittled the idea that there could have, you know, there could possibly be meat in this. You know, I was so. It was later that I I felt no, there's meat in this. Let me quit ask because I'm so used to the town that if I don't ask, it's possible that I'm just going to take pork. So basically, that was one uh, funny event, and it, it turned out that there was pork in it, and I'd already taken some, but that is fine. With a religion, um, if you don't intentionally eat it, it's not a problem. Yeah, and another thing, I don't take alcohol. I think one time too, there was another event. When there's an event, we go, the family and friends meet. Yeah, the older ones take alcohol, and sometimes they mix it with some lemonade. So there was this jar of cup with lim- so I w- I never expected alcohol to be in that jar because that was the lemonade jar. But they act, at that point they had mixed lemonade with alcohol, so I took it and it sounded it, it tasted funny. So I had asked my host mom and she started laughing. She said, "There's alcohol this." That I said, that was another funny thing. But I had just taken a little, so basically that these were some of my funny moments. That something that you were actually very careful of, you didn't want to actually taste, and 
sometimes you can't just control what what comes to you Well, the first time I went to the Dominican Republic, which was not with Fulbright, but was in 2007 in college, I got very sick with a traveler's stomach bug kind of illness. I was working in a clinic with a group of physicians as well as some other undergraduate students, and we were doing public health research. So I stayed home the day that I was sick, and one of the physicians stayed back to kind of watch over me. And when I returned the next day to clinic, the women who usually would make us lunch felt really terrible that I was sick. And so I, I told them, you know, it's okay. I'll just have a little bit of plain rice. Don't worry about me. But they made me this soup. And it was chicken soup, which is a very familiar thing that you eat when you're sick. And I was really grateful to them for taking the time to do that. And as I started digging into the soup, I noticed a chicken's foot reaching out of the soup towards me. And I had no idea what to do. I'd never encountered that before. I felt really bad because I didn't want to be rude. So I just ate around the foot, but I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to do with it. Um, and it was clear that they were, I think that that was something that was kind of like the best, a good part of the chicken that especially if somebody is sick, you give them, but it was really difficult for me. <laughs> We have like this traditional food called ambuyat, which is basically, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, um, it's from this plant. Okay, I'm messing this up, but it's uh, this product called sago. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like white and translucent. And it was essentially um, a rice substitute uh, back in the days. That became kind of a staple for people when we didn't have access to food. Uh, because of the World War II. So, um, and it kind of becomes like a traditional food now. And you've got different sides to it, which is like pickled mangoes, really, really different stuff for different people. So it's pretty exci exciting, yeah. <laughs> The first thing that we were actually like pretty surprised about were the portions of the food is so different to the portions back home. I was kind of like, this is good for like two people. We're like these really small Asians coming down to the restaurant and we're like, oh, so we probably should have shared. <laughs> but yeah, it was just really great. We we're always like subconsciously leaning towards Asian food. So for me, it was like, because I love Korean food as well. So like I was like, there wasn't a lot of Malaysian and Indonesian food close to where we were staying in Providence. So I was like, Korean food, Chinese food, it's all good. We're like, I guess that's for me, like, because I've, I've traveled quite a bit because my dad's also a diplomat. So we've kind of moved around uh, the world quite a bit. And the thing that I've always found coming in and found myself being fe feeling like I was home was always in food so yeah I used to go to church. I used to go to a Lutheran church in Des Moines, in West Des Moines, actually. And you know that in church, in churches, you have carafts uh, uh, of coffee that you can have, you know, after the service. In Bangladesh, we had Nescafe, the instant coffee, you know. And I was used to with that kind of coffee, but I never had 
you know, real coffee from coffee that comes from coffee beans. When when uh, I went to the church, I told my host dad that, hey, I, I'm, a, I'm a very good coffee drinker. I, I like my coffee strong. I want to have coffee here. So I was I was just a senior in high school and he was not sure whether I can take it. So he was doubting me. He was like, are you sure you drink coffee in Bangladesh? And I was taking pride, like, hey, I take like four spoon spoonful of coffee and I make my own coffee and nobody can drink coffee like me. And then he he kind of like with doubts in his mind, he kind of like poured a little bit of coffee on my on my in my cup. The moment I I tried to like chug it, and the moment it like I tasted it, the liquid, it was nothing nothing like I've ever tested be- tasted before and I immediately ran ran towards the bathroom I threw up I got a headache uh, I came back and I was like what was that and my host dad was that was coffee <laughs> so I think I think that was something very shocking to me but towards the end of my exchange program I actually became um, a fan of coffee that same charge coffee uh, that's because my host dad gave me a suggestion that hey you should be uh, taking a little bit of coffee and then pour a little bit of water and then add cream and sugar and then slowly you sh- you should be like increasing the amount of coffee and decreasing the amount of water so slowly i think i got addicted to well i shouldn't be saying addicted but i became a fan of coffee so when i came back there was a reverse culture shock i could not find original coffee in Bangladesh so I was in another trouble you know but uh, fortunately fortunately um, uh, I found a cafe um, by an American and I I ended up uh, once I got to know about that place I ended up working for him uh, just so that I can have coffee you know I think food was the thing that I probably complained the most about since I came. For first thing was I, as a Lithuanian, I'm used to eat a soup for lunch and and a something else like a, another meal. But soup is the the first thing I would have, and I would go to places and I would see those broccoli and cheddar, and I'm like, what is that? Does that doesn't sound like soup at all? And I actually never had it, so maybe I should give it a try before I go. So I was like frustrated to find good soups here. It took me some time, but I finally did. Uh, most hilarious thing I probably saw was uh, a weekend or two ago. I was at a party and someone made a Oreo pudding. Not only that, I was super shocked that Oreos can be double stuffed. <laughs> And they're way too sweet, but that pudding was Oreos, uh, whipped cream, and chocolate (laughs) mixed in a bowl. (laughs) And I was saying, how extra can you be? It's just like, no, I didn't, I I, I did not have a a dad. I I tried and I was like, no. And yeah, and other thing I'd say is I probably got introduced to more a global cuisine than anywhere. I got to eat a lot of Asian dishes. I learned their names. I, for the first time, I had like so many things like 
And surprisingly, these are Asian things like ramen. I've never had that before, or bibimbap, or uh, pad thai. You know, these things that meant nothing to me back home. Now I kind of can say, oh, I want this. I am craving for ramen. <laughs> One day we went to Museum of Natural History, and since they have uh, like some real bugs there, you can insects, you can go and check them out. And we were looking at this insect, I don't remember the name of it, and we were holding it in, in a hand. And then after that, we go to a Mexican food place, and uh, we get tacos. And and there was that one taco with insect that we just saw. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, do you want to try? And I was like, yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> and no, but I just had a bite of that. And I was like, no, I like them alive more than in my mouth. And then my next favorite thing is just the frequency of being able to buy coconuts. So every street corner has a guy selling coconuts. He's got a coconut in one hand and a machete in the other, and he's cracking these open like nobody's business. You're, you're afraid for his fingers, but he's not at all. And so it's just amazing the ease and the, that they will just crack these open for you. So they've, they've just got them stacked up like you know, little like bowling pins or something. I don't know how you how you describe it, but they're just kind of like stacked up and just load. They've got these carts loaded with them. And they know based on the color on the outside what the taste and the flavor will be on the inside. So the way a coconut works is when it, when it begins, it's got a green outer um, husk on the outside and inside the actual round coconut, the kind of inner cavity the the white meat that we're familiar with will slowly develop so you can crack them open and the meat won't be there yet and instead it's mostly liquid and it's a very sweet liquid and then as it begins to develop the meat will get thicker and kind of that juice will almost like ferment a little bit so you'll get almost like a carb a little bit of a carbonated feel to the water and depending on what your preference is you can say oh i want it sweet or i want it um, like I want more meat in it or that kind of a thing. And depending on that, he can just look visually at the color of the, all the coconuts he has stacked there and he'll grab one and hack it open for you. And so the first thing he does is he just slices off the top and he gets, to, he removes that little bit of the outer husk until he gets down to that harder inner cavity. And then with the tip of his machete, he'll kind of hack open a little bit of a, of an opening and then either pop a straw in it or you just drink it straight from there. And so then you sit there and at any given time around a coconut stand, he'll have about five to 10 customers just drinking their coconut. You'll see, see people pulled to the side of the road on their commute to work and their wife on the back was complaining that she's thirsty. So he'll pull over and get her a coconut and kind of all walk, walks of life will be coming together. Auto drivers will pull over, you know, kids on their way to school, all dressed in their uniforms will grab a coconut and so you 
drink it and you drink the water that's inside and then you hand it back to him and at that point he will hack it open split it in two and then carve out the meat that is on the inside and then hand it back to you and it's nothing more than about 10 to 25 rupees which is like 20 to 30 cents that you can get a coconut and here you know you're buying them for like six dollars a piece sometimes in a, in a restaurant so i recognized i didn't want to take that for granted i had a coconut every morning um, the, the guy who would sell the coconuts would ask me where I was if I forgot to come one day. He's like, where, where were you yesterday? Or where were you over the weekend? I said, oh, I traveled. I was in Chennai or so. And he's like, I was worried about you. So kind of those little relationships that you have on a daily basis is something that, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And yeah, I didn't take it for granted that I was, had coconuts in such abundance. We're in Colombia, one of my now, of course, incredibly favorite countries ever. Um, and, and we're in Cartagena, which if you have not been, go quickly now. It's just, it's so beautiful. One of the things that is fabulous about Cartagena is the, the seafood. I'm a huge fan of ceviche and I've eaten ceviche all over Colombia. And mind you, never had food poisoning or never had a problem with it. It's so fresh. It's delicious. And oh, uh, so you go to this place, you get to Cartagena, and everybody has a favorite place. Our fixer has this, this like little stand. You don't go to the restaurant, you go to a little stand, and it's incredibly fresh, and you pick your own, and you sit there, and you eat it out of a cup in the, in the warm summer night, and it's beautiful. But one day, we, we fly to Bogota, we fly to, to Cartagena, we get there, and the whole crew goes out for lunch, but I've got to prep for this interview and I'm, I'm really nervous about it. I want to get it right. We have one crack to get this interview, right? So I'm like, no, nah, I'll just eat some soup in the, in the hotel. So they go and they come back and they say, wow, you missed the best lunch ever. And I was like, oh, I'm really jealous. Maybe I shouldn't have prepped, whatever. So our interviewee comes, we start to film and the sky opens and it's raining like crazy. And now I'm thinking the whole time I'm doing the interview, the sound of the rain on this tin roof, this is going to be a disaster, but we don't have another shot. So we'll just go forward, but maybe, you know, movie magic, get it in post, which by the way, everybody in post hates when you come back and say, you can fix this, right? So we're going forward, we're going forward. The interview is going like, eh, okay. But I suddenly notice that the camera guy's running back and forth to his room and the sound guy's running back and forth. And there's some sort of weird commotion, but nobody wants to say anything. And I'm asking my questions and asking my questions. And then the camera guy comes back and he goes, can you just operate the camera? And I am not a shooter. So I look at him and I say, okay, but do you really want to do this? And he goes, I'll be right back again. So we finish up the interview. I'm not convinced. The subject leaves, and I turn around to talk to the crew. I was like, what happened? I can't find them. I go into their rooms, and they are both hanging over their toilets. For the next 24 hours, lunch came and is leaving, and leaving, and leaving, and leaving. And I, of course, feel fine. And we realize that while the lunch was a disaster and the interview didn't work, at the least, we got it down and I was saved. So never go to lunch, but always have ceviche for dinner.
2233 is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. In this episode, our taste buds were tempted by Tony Tahan, Nusa Akinsoke Al-Hassan, Irene Matu, Muiza Harun, Munif Khan, Ruta Binorute, Kayla Huemer, and Leslie Thomas. We thank them for their stories and for their willingness to try new things. For more about ECA exchanges, including Fulbright programs, you can check us out at eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and we would love to hear from you. You can write to us always at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-I-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. And now you can follow us on Instagram at 2233stories. Special thanks this week to everybody for sharing their food stories, delicious or otherwise. Anna Maria Sanitin and I did the various interviews and I edited this segment. Featured music during this segment was Spring is Sprung by Jerry Mulligan. Music at the top of each food episode is Monkeys Spinning Monkeys by Kevin McLeod, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time. <laughs>